Good morning, church. You open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6. Where we find ourselves this morning is two very familiar stories. And we're going to look at them both together because although these accounts of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry were remarkable on their own and certainly would warrant a sermon each, we're going to see something in them as we look at them together. I believe, and men much wiser than myself believe, God wanted us to know and God wanted us to see as we looked at these stories. Look with me at Mark chapter 6. Look at verse 31. And he, Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and began amazed, saying, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii and bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and two fish. And looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up the twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we today, and all of the technology that we possess, and all the agricultural prowess that you have blessed man to understand, we still can't take one fish and turn it into two fish outside of normal biological processes much less multiply bread without having more wheat, more mills to grind flour, more ovens to bake it. It's a simple thing, but it is a humbling thing. That your son, while he was on earth, was able, in the spirit, through prayer, to multiply these items that not only provide sustenance, but that provide joy and blessing. But your son also says that he is true food, that your word is nourishment. So this morning, in anticipation of your word, the supper, but also in this moment, nourish us with your word. Allow us to feed on your son and all that is revealed to us about him by your spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Comparing and contrasting. So, the best way to compare and contrast thing ever devised by man is the Venn diagram. I'm in a constant state of making Venn diagrams in my head, and if you're ever in conversation with me, you may see me inadvertently and, uh, and without thinking, do this with my hands because I betray what's happening in my head and create a small Venn diagram. I also have been known to find funny Venn diagrams on the internet. For example, uh, one on one side that says, never going to give you up, and the other one on the other side that says, never going to let you down, and where they cover it says, Rick Astley. Look it up later, it's great. There's countless like this on there that will keep you in stitches if this is your kind of humor, and if it's not your kind of humor, then you need to work on it. But Venn diagrams are, are helpful because what they do is they show how things are different, but they also show how things are the same. Um, so, for example, there's uh, another one that's uh, people that don't understand Venn diagrams and people that don't understand Venn diagrams and they never touch. And David likes this, and that's good enough for me. See, that the song was for you today and the illustration was for you today, David. Anyway, but comparing and contrasting is helpful for us. It, it allows us to see things in a greater light. It allows uh, there to be... an a, a, a light shown upon how things that, that we, when we don't focus on them may seem, may seem like they're, they, they have very little relation. When we compare them and we contrast them, we see how the differences and the similarities are actually the things that we ought to be paying attention to here. And in this text, both in the feeding of the 5,000, as we'll get to here in a moment, Jesus walking on water, we see Mark in the inspiration of the Spirit comparing and contrasting different things about the apostles, those who spend a lot of time with Jesus, and the crowds. Those are the just kind of hovering around in the periphery. And also we see a, a, a comparison in this text between Christ and between the Father as, and, and God revealed in the Old Testament. So, Again, we have two stories, two groups of people. We have the feeding of the 5,000. We have Jesus walking on the water. And one of the recurring themes that we see in these two things is the disciples' lack of growth, their lack of understanding, their lack of, ultimately, what it comes down to is faith. But we also see Christ among the crowds and people that weren't spending time with Jesus, that shouldn't necessarily have known better, beginning to, to, as illustrated by Mark, not just beginning to, but continuing to show great faith. Those who were closest to Christ were struggling. Those who were simply responding to their felt needs were going to Jesus. So these are the things that we're going to see in these two texts. So firstly, let's revisit the feeding of the 5,000. So the, uh, the apostles had just come back from their evangelistic mission that we talked about two weeks ago. Last week, there was an interlude that was illustrating the cost of following God in uh, the death of John the Baptist. But now the apostles are back with Christ, and they go to have a break, they go to have a respite, they go to have a brief sabbatical, but the people follow them. And so they, although they were trying to go get some rest and some food themselves, 5,000 men and countless women and children follow them, and Jesus sees that these people are hungry. Well, in fact, the apostles see that these people are hungry. In fact, they said that 
in, uh, in, in verse 36. They said that the place is, excuse me, in verse 35, this place is desperate. It's already quite late. There's no food to be found. There's no restaurants. It's, it's, it's like parts of New Hampshire. You can't find a good restaurant that's open. And then they said, so he says, send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. What does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. My translation puts an exclamation point at the end of that statement. Now, we could talk a lot about that, and actually I think that it, it would be warranted to have that conversation of what Christ wants his apostles to do. Why does he want them to do it? What is, what is ministry if not ministering to people? I think it's important here, and this is not going to be the focus of, of, of our study this morning, nor is it necessarily the focus of the text, but what Christ illustrates is that although his teaching, his communicating the deeper things of God is indeed the focus. His teaching is the emphasis. All of his signs point to his teaching, but the signs matter, and the things that occur on the periphery matter. And indeed, the comforts and the, 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 the physical needs that may be felt by people hearing that message matter also. We cannot think about the kingdom. We cannot think about the good news of salvation. We cannot think about the gospel with not seeing how it is oftentimes delivered alongside of a warm meal, also delivered alongside of a warm hug, is not delivered in ministering to people where they are. Christ is communicating this to his apostles. And it's interesting because as those who were sent out to minister, they were commanded to seek the, 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 the um, being supported by others. While now, as they are engaged in ministry, they are called to seek to minister to others. So this is an essential part of ministry, is bearing one another's physical burdens. Certainly, we pray for each other. We bear one another up in, in, in uh, talking through our difficulties. But that's also the benefit given in the spirit of these physical blessings and benefits. And so Christ here reminds them of this and says, you give them something to eat. This is part of it. You're not just going to stand behind me like, like so many elders in Southern Baptist churches and, and just sit there and nod as I teach. You're going to get up and give them food. There's nothing wrong with having people sit behind you, by the way. But that's not what he was calling the elders, the, the, the apostles to do. He was saying, you're going to do something. You're not just going to stand by idly. And so what do they do? They, they say, how many loaves do you have? Go look. They said, five loaves and two fish. He commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. We're going to see a few things here that we could really, again, if, if we're only looking at this one passage, we could dive into and see some remarkable things. But what Christ is revealing to himself, and again, here we have a comparison. Here we have a Venn diagram that is actually just a circle on top of another circle. Christ, in both of these miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the Jesus walking on water, is going to communicate both in his actions and then mark, through the inspiration of the Spirit, through this text, how Christ is God. So once again, we have the... the, the acting out of, the living out of, the ministry that reflects the deity of Christ. We don't see it explicitly in the words, although we do at times, but more often than not, we see Jesus doing the things that God does. And so, how is Jesus telling them to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties something that God does? Well, 
what do we have here? We have a group of people that are in the wilderness. They're in a desolate place. And what, what is their problem? He says in verse 34, this is such an, a remarkable statement by Christ, that he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They are wandering. They're in the wilderness. They are hungry. Think back in your Bibles, in your minds, when did we see wandering for? We see a similar situation to the children of Israel as they are wandering in the wilderness and they are hungry and they are depending on God. Their leaders could not get them food. It wasn't that Moses was dragging some sort of wagon of, 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 of food and that he had some sort of great means at his disposal that he just had to, to crack into. They had to depend upon God. And so when God tells Moses to tell the people the plan of the manna that's eventually going to materialize on the ground and eventually the quail, they're going to find their way into the camp. God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament commands Moses to tell his people to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties and tens so that he can tell them that their God is going to provide for them. Jesus tells his apostles, to command them to sit down by groups in the green grass, groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he takes the loaves and he takes the fish. And looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. Like manna from God in the desert, Christ is giving people food. He's giving people food. He's giving people food, though, in abundance. One of the things about manna, of course, was that if you kept it, it would go bad. God gave them enough. He gave them enough to sustain them. He gave them enough on, on, on the day before the Sabbath to sustain them for the Sabbath. But anything that was kept beyond that would go bad. But here, what do we see with Christ? Christ now, in illustrating the nature of the new covenant, illustrating the nature of grace that has come because of the Son of God coming and living among men, dwelling among men, taking on flesh and walking among them. Now there is abundance. There are 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish, which gives us this wonderful picture of the apostles holding each of them, holding a full basket of food when they said what we should have done a couple hours ago was send these people so that they could get food because there's no food here. And now each one of them, and my flannel graph memory has this seared into my mind of these apostles looking a little bit befuddled because each one of them now has a full basket of bread and a couple of fish in their pockets. This is the abundance of Christ. This is the, the, the fullness of Christ. The leftover food not going surpassing what, what Moses did in the wilderness, but also showing like the miracles of Elijah and Elisha overflowing, abundant, never running out blessings given to the people. Christ is illustrating that he is better than the prophets. He is illustrating that he is indeed God. But I think as, as much as we see this, and again, this wonderful comparison between Christ as revealed in the New Testament and God as revealed in the Old Testament, as we need to keep that in mind, that comparison, we also need to see the contrast. The faithfulness and the provision given by Christ and the problem with the apostles. 
He had provided everything. They had done the miraculous, and yet their initial responses send them away. I don't think it was necessarily a lack of compassion. I think it was, that's the only solution. The only thing that we can do is figure this out logistically. 5,000 men, we, the only thing they can do is go to their own homes, go to their own villages, and get food. They responded to a need in the way that we should respond to needs when we are relying upon ourselves. But the question is, how should they have responded to a need when Christ is there? That's the question. And that's the question that we should ask ourselves. How do you respond when there is a need and Christ is there? Is, and of course, what frames this conversation, what frames this discussion, is the truth and is the reality that if you are a Christian, if you have been regenerated by the Spirit, if you are in Christ, that every time you have a need, Christ is there. This is difficult for us, church. One of the things that is so difficult for us when we are capable, when we are competent, when we have resources, when we have skills, when we have an education, when we have a family, when we have a community, when we have stuff, when we have experience, is to stop and ask God, how do I answer this need? How do I meet this need? Now, does this mean that when you go to Market Basket and you have your credit card and you have a credit limit and you have enough money in your bank account to cover that credit card statement at the end of the month, that before you go tap that card on that little reader, that you say, wait, hold on, let me ask God how I should actually, this should be supplied. And you look at the person behind you and say, you feeling generous? Or you look at the woman saying, am I the 500th customer of the day? Or That's not what we're saying. But I think we know what we're talking about. We're talking about living when that twinge of, I don't have enough money in my credit card, or on my, on, in, my, in my bank account. I don't know when that, I'm going to cover this bill for something much larger. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this difficulty. When I, I deal with this noise that my car is making, I'm dealing with this smell coming from my furnace. I deal with, 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 with this driveway that is really becoming difficult to deal with because when it snows, I, I can't get out. So I, when I'm dealing with a difficult person at work, when I'm de- dealing with a difficult job description, when I'm dealing with a difficult situation with my children, when I'm dealing with a difficult situation with my parents... Do we say, well, I'm going to muscle through this? Well, I can spend my way out of it. Well, I can tap into a rainy day fund. Well, I can bury my head in the sand. How do we respond when there is a need? Because Christ is there. The apostles had a wonderfully pragmatic answer. There's enough villages there's enough places for them to go. Logistically, they nailed it. They had a perfect plan, but they never took into account the greatest resource at their disposal, and that was the incarnate Son of God who was in their midst. And so frequently, we find ourselves in the same situation, where logistically, we have it perfect. On paper, it's going to come together. We're taking into account countless variables, and we're using everything at our disposal to come up with a plan to make it through today, this week, next year, such that we have a three-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, and our accountant looks at us and says, what am I doing here? We have it figured out. 
but do we take into account that we have Christ? Does this mean that we can't have a five-year plan or a 10-year plan? Does this mean that we can't rely on, on utilizing our resources, both our financial and our tangible and, our, and, 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 and even those of experience? Absolutely not. But is that where we turn to first or do we turn to Christ first? There was a, there's, a, there's a camp up in New Durham, New Hampshire, uh, Maranatha Ministries. It's been around for 50 years or so, and the gentleman that founded that camp passed away a few years ago. His name was Chris Edmonds. Chris was an incredibly generous man, an incredibly humble man. He is the man where if I ever offer you a bottle of water, it's because I'm thirsty, and he taught me as, a, as a, an adult, if you're thirsty, there's probably somebody else who's thirsty, so always have a second bottle of water. Simple things like that. This was his servant mentality. But one of the things that Chris Edmonds said all the time, and actually their newsletter, even these years after his passing, is called Pray First. So he was in the business, as many people who have been involved in camp ministry in one way, shape, or form understand, that things aren't always available. Things are sometimes break down. And whether it's because of where you are or because of the, the financial resources that are not at your disposal, you need to probably pray to find some great solution. And so he, has, he had numerous stories of praying because they didn't have X and getting the money was impossible and then turning around and a truck would break down full of X and said, I need to get rid of it because otherwise it's going to go bad. Countless stories like that. And so what he communicated and illustrates this, 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 what we're talking about here is that we ought to pray first. Even if we know that we have a solution. Even though if we know if there's a person we can call, somewhere we, we can go online, a, a, a mason jar buried in the backyard full of, of, of cash. People do that still, I suppose. Pray first. Because Christ is there in as much as the apostles, as they were saying, let's figure out, let's give them directions to the nearby towns to go get food. Christ was there in their midst and they weren't looking to him. They were looking to themselves. They were looking to each other. They were looking to the resources that were available to them. Christ was there. And in his spirit, Christ is there. Wherever you are, whatever the situation may be, if you are sitting in an opulent office or you are stranded on the side of the road, Christ is there. We can pray to him. We can ask him. Before we stick out our thumb to hitch a ride, before we simply call up the secretary so she can expense it, Christ is there. He is able to take care of all of the situations that we have. It very well may be in means, because notice what he says. In verse 38, he says, how many loaves do you have? Go look. He doesn't say, all right, I'm just going to manna. It's going to come on. He actually utilizes the agency of the apostles. He utilizes their ability to go and get these things and to distribute it and then to gather it up. He asks them to look at what they have. But sometimes God does this for us. We have a resource. We have something that we might tap into. Sometimes it's something that we possess, something sometimes... And oftentimes, it's something that somebody in our family or in our church or in our community possesses. And simply by him saying, stop, pray first, come to me, he allows us to realize that we don't have to work harder, we can maybe work smarter. 
So Jesus provides, but he asks us to do what we need to do. Jesus does the miracle in the feeding of the 5,000, but he asks the apostles to serve. So church, I'll, I'll repeat the question again. How do you respond when there is a need knowing that Christ is there? Christ is there. No matter what it is, we pray, we go to him, and he may very well say, I've equipped you to come up with a flowchart and a spreadsheet and, an, and a plan and a financial process and, and everything that you, you were planning on doing. I've equipped you and enabled you to do that, so go do that. Or he might say, wait. We go to him first. We allow him to minister in not just the big spiritual situations, but in the mundane, in, in the simple situations. Because oftentimes, those things, the things that feel so logistic, the things that feel so economic, the things that feel just, just like normal everyday life, those are the things in hindsight that we see, ah, God revealed himself to us in a thing, in a person, in a situation. How do you respond when there's a need and Christ is there? Well, continuing on, again, we have a second miracle. We see this beginning in verse 45. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, where he himself was sending the crowd away. So it's interesting. Christ, who needed rest, said, you guys go get some rest, you go sail, and I'll disperse the people. Verse 46, and after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he was intending to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought that it was a ghost, and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly amazed. For they had not gained any insight about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. This is a remarkable story, a remarkable account of, what, of, of who Jesus is. I'll just ask this very simple question. Can you walk on water? I mean, right now you can in New Hampshire because it's all frozen solid, but can you walk on water? It's, it's, a, it's a simple and kind of a dumb question. Christ does this. And, and sometimes we think, ah, you know, this is amazing because I can't do it. And you're right, it is amazing because you can't do it. But it's amazing for another reason. And the reason isn't simply to illustrate Christ's supernatural abilities. This is, once more, for anyone who's familiar with the Bible, talking about the, the original audience, who Mark was writing to, anyone familiar with the Old Testament knows that this is something that is the prerogative of Yahweh. Job 38 says, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Psalm 77 says, Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters, but your footprints were not known. Isaiah 43 says, Thus says Yahweh, Who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters? It wasn't simply that walking on the water was miraculous and we ought to be impressed. It's that walking on the water is miraculous and we ought to be impressed because this is something that is the prerogative of God. 
And so this man, this one who just fed 5,000, this one who is teaching these, these disciples things, these ones that are, he's rebuking these apostles for their lack of faith, it is not simply that he is a miracle worker. It is not simply that he is a prophet in the like of Elijah or Elisha. It is not simply that he is a leader like Moses. It's that he is God in flesh. This is what's being communicated by Jesus walking on water. It's not simply something to wow us. Again, it's pointing to a greater reality, a higher reality, his very nature of divinity. Christ, in doing the simple act of sending them, and I think that the subtext here is interesting. You know, they're straining at the oars, there's a great wind. So although he's already calmed one storm in the, in the Gospel of Mark that we talked about, illustrating his authority over the wind and the waves, this is where you see the authorial intent, again, of the Holy Spirit, but also of Mark, in showing that, one, he does have the authority to calm the sea and calm the wind, the same language that was used of that first, of that first uh, incident of, of a similar thing happening. But here, the focus is different. It's not so much on his authority of that. It's as his identity of the one who says, in verse 15, and we kind of lose this in English, for they saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, or I am, do not be afraid. Christ is identifying himself in what he does and what he says as Yahweh. And yet they're still afraid. How do you respond when you're afraid and Christ is there? So similar to how do you respond when you are in need and Christ is there? How do you respond when you are afraid and Christ is there? Fear is an impulse that is very difficult to deal with. Because it's a good thing, right? It's good to be afraid. If there are situations in which fear is necessary. When you haven't skied in 10 years and you get off the lift and you go to the edge of that slope that has that little black diamond and that sensation you get in your stomach, and if you get to a certain age, what you perceive will happen to your knees and your back and your neck, the fear that comes in at that moment is helpful and is good, and so you waddle backwards to find that green circle and realize this is a much better option. Fear has an advantage. When you wade out into the ocean and you're enjoying the sensation of being moved by the waves, and it goes from fun to a little scary because you realize that the waves are moving you more than you can move, then fear is a helpful impulse to take you back where you ought to go. But there's situations where fear is not something that you can simply waddle or swim away from. There are plenty of times in our life where fear grips us when we're laying in the comfort of our own bed. There are plenty of situations where fear grips us as we're about to open a door, as we're about to open a letter, as we're about to answer a phone call, fear can paralyze us before a conversation, before we receive a bit of news, before we have to say something. How do you respond when you are afraid? Because God is there. The apostles were on the boat. 
And although Christ was physically, it says, on the land still, God was there. Regardless of what they knew about the person of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the coming atonement of Christ, and I would argue very little at this point, they still should have been fully cognizant of the fact that God was in control of everything. Everything they had seen Jesus do, everything that he was doing, pointing to the Father, pointing to his sustaining hand, pointing to his authority, regardless of what they thought about Jesus, they should have known enough to have faith in God. And still they feared. How do you respond when you are afraid, knowing that Christ is there? He's capable of taking care of our material needs when, when there's a need Christ is there. He's also capable of take care, taking care of our emotional needs. Now, these are two things that we don't often talk about in the right way. I think we can, we can you, there, there's a, uh, you know, that, that Venn diagram thing I was talking about earlier. There's a very little overlap of, of properly talking about our emotional and our material needs and talking about our spiritual needs. I think churches and Christians and, and, and movements within evangelicalism can gravitate towards one or the other. Let's just make sure that you're feeling good and you have what you need. Or, that stuff doesn't matter, let's only talk about making sure that you are very, very pious and that you're being very, very obedient. Those are kind of the two aspects of the pendulum that Christianity oftentimes goes to. But as is the case in so many other things, in so many other areas of Christianity, in so many areas of what's been revealed to us in Scripture, it is much more nuanced than that, and it requires attention where we are focused on the spiritual, but how the spiritual impacts the material and how it impacts the emotional. Because God is a God of every one of these things. God is a God of the food in your belly, and God is a God of the, 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 the fear in your heart, and God is a God of your soul. All of these things must be addressed. And so they all ought to be addressed, not by pop psychology, not by our, our again, you know, our wisdom or our cunning or our craftiness, but they are to be addressed under the sovereignty of God. If Christ is there, how do you respond to your physical needs, your financial needs, your relationship needs? If Christ is there, how do you respond to your fears? Your fears about finances, your fears about physical things, your fears about relationships. How do you respond? Christ is there. We give it to him. Have you ever stood in front of the mirror and rehearsed the conversation you're going to have with that person? Have you ever written the email, looked at it, rewrote it, maybe thought about what they were going to think about once you send it. And the trepidation of before you make that phone call or you hit send. You got to be careful. I sent an email prematurely this week. Thankfully, I, I was, it was nothing too bad. It was only accusing somebody of lying, but that's okay. Do we stop and pray? Do we stop and pray? Do we stop and say, God, is this what would you would have me do? And is this what would you would have me feel about this situation? Maybe even am I sending an email because I'm afraid of calling this person on the phone? For younger people, a phone, it's like the texting thing, only you hear people. It's very interesting. 
are we afraid because it's, it's hard? And that's okay for things to be hard. Are we afraid because we're putting it all on ourselves and we're not giving it to God? Christ is there. He will see us through those difficult things. And he, it doesn't mean he's going to take the difficulty away. What we see here happening to the apostles by the, the wind and the wave going away completely isn't necessarily going to be the, the, the path forward that he has for us. But there is a path forward that he has for us. And acknowledging that when the difficult conversation is going to happen, when, when we are replaying the thoughts over and over and again of something that has happened or something that we anticipate is going to happen, and fear is the natural response, giving that to God is the way through. We may still have that feeling in the pit of our stomach. Our palms may still sweat when we go to do what we need to do. But we have done it in the context of the understanding that God's reality is influencing every step we take in our lives. One more text I wanted to point out before we go to our last few verses. In Job chapter 9, in talking about God, it says that he's the one who says for the sun not to shine. He sets a seal upon the stars. Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Who does great things, unsearchable and wondrous works, innumerable? Were he to sweep by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could turn back? Who could say to him, what are you doing? The unknowable immensity of Yahweh as communicated in the book of Job. Who tramples down the waves? Were he to move past me, I would not foresee him, Job says. And here we have Jesus trampling down the waves, moving past the language of that in verse 48, walking on the sea and he was intending to pass by them. And they didn't know who he was at first, but what did he do? He revealed himself. The unknowability, the immensity, the, the transcendence of God is brought close, near, imminent, comprehensible in the person and ministry of Christ. This is another wonderful comparison and contrast that Mark is making. That the fullness of of God dwelt in the person of Jesus Christ, but he was bringing a revelation that, 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 that fulfilled everything that was anticipated. All the unknowability was made known. All the passing by was brought near in the person and the ministry of Jesus. But verse 52 is kind of where I want to land. The apostles hadn't gained any insight about the loaves, and their heart was hardened. And verse 53 says, And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to carry here and there on their mats those who were sick to the place they heard he was. And wherever he was entering villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces 
and pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were being saved from their sicknesses. There was a great fervor and great excitement about the person of Christ. People knew that their physical fears, people knew that their their spiritual needs could be met because Christ was there. It was a a, a very rudimentary understanding. They saw him as a miracle worker. They saw him as someone anointed. They saw him as someone special, but they still responded rightly. The apostles were kind of processing it, who had that proximity with Jesus. It said that even after the feeding of the 5,000, even after the calming of the wind and the waves, even after everything else that we've read about in Mark, that we know about from the other Gospels, that the, the countless things that, is, as it says in John, if it were be recorded, there wouldn't be enough room to write them down. Their hearts were still hardened. So uh, two questions I've already asked. How do you respond when there's a need knowing Christ is there? How do you respond when you are afraid knowing that Christ is there? The third one, is your heart hardened even though Christ is here? We could have an entire study about the idea of a hardening of heart. Sometimes we think about Pharaoh and having his heart hardened. But it's not just the, the, the black hats of the Bible that have hard hearts. We can have hard hearts. The apostles had hard hearts. It was a heart that the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the Word, the ministry of sacrament is unable to penetrate because of sin and because of not looking in the right direction. A hardness of heart that is not softened to the prompting of the Spirit, the the compelling of the Word, the impelling of the church and of the supper. These things are things that we cannot be hardened to. We can't say, well, we do this every week so it just becomes so routine. We get together every week so it becomes routine. There's a really good rotation of songs, but over the course of six or eight months, we've seen the same things a few times. It doesn't have that same sort of punch. Start to focus on, things could be a little better. The room could be a little warmer. I'm not arguing that. Music could be a little different. Sermons could be a little bit shorter. People could be a little bit nicer. Or maybe people could be a little less nice. When we start to think about those things, we don't think enough about what Christ is saying, what the Spirit is doing, what the Word is calling us to. We begin to think about how things become very normal and usual. And then when we focus too much, we realize things probably aren't as good as they could be. Things are probably harder than I'd like them to be. And instead of turning to Christ because there's a need and turning to Christ because there's a fear, we look inside and in doing so, we curl up like a turtle and things get hard. In our attempt to defend ourselves, we don't leave ourselves vulnerable to the Spirit, vulnerable to the Word, vulnerable to the body of Christ. The hard facade is oftentimes indicative of a hard heart. 
I don't say that to cast aspersions in a difficult situation that you may be thinking about in your own life or the lives of someone around you. But we can be so familiar with the normalcy of a life in community with the people of Christ, a life that is surrounded by the word, a life of prayer, that we don't allow it to soften us, but we allow it to harden us. What is the solution? The solution is know that there's a need and know that Christ is there. The solution is reminding yourself that there are inevitably fears, but Christ is there. If our hearts are hardened, remind ourselves that Christ is there. When you are afraid, when you are in need, Christ is there. There's some warnings in Scripture. The book of Hebrews has plenty of warnings. It says, encourage one another day after day. So this is a reminder that, that in Hebrews chapter 3, that, that we are the instruments by which we are softened while we pull each other out of our shells, while we kind of break down that facade that has become caked over with, with creosote and, and filth sometimes. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And church, is something that is, is not easy to say because I know it isn't always taken well, but sometimes our fears are the result of sin. Looking inwards and trusting ourselves more than we trust God. It's a hard thing to say to somebody who's in the, in, in, in the midst of a fear or in the midst of a need. Sometimes we need because we don't ask, and not asking is because we don't have enough faith. And what do we call that? We call that sin. But just the great leveling thing is reminding that we're all struggling with this. There are all things that we are wrongly afraid of, in as much as there's things that we're rightly afraid of. There's things that we are wrongly afraid of, and that is sin. And in as much as there's legitimate needs that we just can't meet, there's needs that we don't have because we don't ask, and that is a lack of faith, and that is sin. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. Reminding ourselves, this church, we have become partakers of Christ, that Christ is not just is there because he's, he's there in our heads because we kind of surround ourselves with churchy things, but Christ is in us. He sends us his spirit. We are reminded by that, by the supper. That is the point. Being partakers of Christ is specific language that Christ used, that the apostles pick up on, that we, we take and we eat and we drink to remind ourselves of the presence of Christ, the real presence of Christ. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. So church, that brings us to the supper. We have become partakers of Christ. If you are in Christ, he is in you. His spirit is in you. We feed on him daily. And just like you can't desire nourishment from real food and ingest it and it not have an impact, if you eat that orange, it will give you vitamin C. If you eat that bread, it will give you gluten, which I know is good for some and not for others. 
If you eat that meat, it will give you protein. If you eat those things, you will receive the benefit of it. We have become partakers in Christ, and he is in us. You will receive that benefit. The small meal, the cup, and the bread is a reminder of that. It's a reminder that when we are in need, we turn to Christ. We are in need this morning. Every one of us in this room needs something. This is a reminder that we have what we need in Christ. It's a reminder that he is present with us when we fear. Every one of us in this room today fears something. And this bread and this cup reminds us that he is with us. We have become partakers of him, and he will sustain us. So as you come up and receive the elements as John comes in place, be reminded of these truths, that we have become partakers of Christ, that there is a great comparison that has been made between who we were and who we are. And this great comparison that has been made to the God who brought all things into order and the God that has revealed himself to us and made us available to us in these simple elements. Consider your fears. Consider your needs. Consider any hardness. And as you pray, as you receive the elements, allow his spirit to chip these things away. Minister to you in this moment. Pray with me. Lord, it is not easy to point fingers at ourselves in particular. It is not easy to take those moments to think about our needs, things that may weigh heavily on our hearts and heavily on our minds, and ask the question, have I been going about this the wrong way? It's even less fun and less appropriate in our day and age to look at our fears and ask that same question. But Lord, convict us of where we try to eke out a meager living outside of your provision. Forgive us for when we try to deal with being scared, deal with being intimidated, deal with all of our anxieties outside of the comforter that you have given us, your Holy Spirit. You are here. As real as you were in the midst of the apostles as they were distributing and gathering bread, and as real as you were as your son was walking the waves, Sea of Galilee, you are here. You are present. You're present as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're here as we encourage one another day by day, as long as it is called today. You are here in the supper that we are about to receive. We thank you that we can receive it in faith. In the name of your son we pray, amen.